Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mayhan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, our guest is filmmaker Stephen Kayak, here to talk about his new movie that features all kinds of music by the Smiths, Shoplifters of the World. Shoplifters of the World Unite and take over Shoplifters of the World Hand it over, hand it over, hand it over Learn to love me in the simple way Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Rhino Podcast, and welcome to John Hughes. John, how are you? Hey, Rich. I'm I'm okay. Excellent. I'm glad to see that everything's good, and <laughs> yada yada. And what am I saying? It's I, like I, I can't get out of this fog today. I think just the excitement of everything ramping up again, and man, it's, I I get tongue tied too when I see what's going on, especially on Rhino.com. How's that for a segue? <laughs> I'm telling you what, we are definitely getting to that time of the year where the releases are starting to come down at a much faster clip. And this week is no exception. We have some new announcements to share with everyone. I know I say this every time, but I really love these two things that we're going to focus on. Uh, the first one, uh, STP, Stone Temple Pilots. Yeah. Tiny Music, Songs from the Vatican Gift Shop, a super deluxe edition. Do you know this album is 25 years old? I don't want to know that this album is 25 years old. <laughs> this STP album had three number one hits, Big Bang Baby, which is the best Red Cross song ever, by the way, uh, <laughs> Lady Picture Show, and Trippin' on a Hole in a Paper Heart. This new three CD, one LP, super deluxe edition combines a newly remastered version of the album with a lot of unreleased early takes, alternate versions, and a full live concert from 1997. It's going to be available from rhino on july 23rd yeah and if any of you folks have dove into any of the other past deluxe edition stone temple pilots releases you know what you're in store for it's going to be a lot of good stuff on this one and it's just a gorgeous presentation too uh, the team did a really good job on this yeah Alongside that, we have Rod Stewart, 1975 to 1978. This is a 5LP box set that features his first four Warner Brothers albums with newly remastered sound and a bonus LP of rare and unreleased session outtakes. Very now, cool. this is primo Rod in this collection. You get Atlantic Crossing, A Night on the Town, Footloose and Fancy Free, and Blondes Have More Fun. Think about the songs that are in this era. Sailing, I Don't Want to Talk About It, I Was Only Joking, The First Cut is the Deepest, You're in My Heart, and Yes, Do You Think I'm Sexy? 
It also has a bonus LP called Encores, 1975 to 1978. These are 10 outtakes selected from the recording sessions from all four albums. You get a really cool cover of the Bee Gees to Love Somebody. Nice. That was re- yeah, it was recorded. It gets better. It was recorded with the Stax Records house band, Booker T and the MGs. Oh, man. And just all sorts of great stuff on this box set. It comes out on June 4th. That's really going to be great. I can't wait to hear that bonus LP. Like you said, it's prime Rod Stewart. That's really when he was in his heyday. Good stuff. Yeah, for sure. Can't wait. Well, John, thank you very much. Thanks, Rich. I will catch you next time. Right on. Well, today's guest is director and screenwriter Stephen Kayak. He's well known for his music-centric documentaries such as Jocko, which is an excellent dive into the genius and madness of bass great Jocko Pastorius and The Stones in Exile, which covers the Rolling Stones' creation of their beloved record, Exile on Main Street. Stephen's latest film, Shoplifters of the World, a comedy he wrote and directed, is set in Denver in 1988 and is loosely based around an actual incident in which an 18-year-old nearly carried out a plan to commandeer Denver Top 40 radio station Y108 after the breakup of The Smiths. Shoplifters is loaded with great music, most of it by the Smiths, and it takes us on a time machine trip to the pre-internet 80s. Stephen, welcome to the Rhino Podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So you wrote and directed the new movie, Shoplifters of the World, absolutely interwoven with the Smith's music. It's a critical part of the movie. Just taking a step back, though, you obviously have a very close relationship with music. You've made so many music-focused films. Jocko, for instance, or Stones in Exile, both of which I've seen, which were excellent. So... How did you get started making music documentaries? Well, I got started making documentaries first, which kind of happened to me by accident. I kind of started life as a writer-director, wanting to uh, go in that direction, and ended up uh, making a documentary with a German filmmaker called Cinemania back in 2000 in New York about manic-obsessive film buffs in New York City, (laughs) uh, which, which was a little, you know, as you can imagine, a film about people who are crazy about film. Uh, right. It became a little, a little bit of a film festival juggernaut. It took us all over the world, and we had a great time with that. And then, in just kind of trying to figure out what my next thing might be, I learned that Scott Walker was about to make a new album. You know, the great reclusive mystery man of pop, big crooner in the '60s, turned sort of kind of like the J.D. Salinger of pop, right? He okay, like yeah. was kind of like the male Dusty Springfield of his day. <laughs> okay, uh, right. You know, an American who became very famous in England with his band, the Walker Brothers, uh, in 65. Come 69, his fourth solo album has fallen off the charts after, you know, he tried writing songs about Bergman and existentialism. And, you know, he just he just went kind of off a deep end. But I was obsessed. I, I got into his reissues and he became one of these artists who emerges kind of like once a decade now with like a new a new album that took him further and further and further away from the mainstream. 
to a point when he was doing really experimental music. So I heard he was about to make a new album. I thought, my God, maybe this is the last one he's ever going to do if it takes him this long. And I just set about trying to make a film about him. And that really kicked off the music films. We got David Bowie to executive produce. David was a huge Scott Walker fan. Scott was highly influential on David's career. And that was like the first real labor of love. You know, it took about six or so years to make, but ended up including everybody from like the guys on Radiohead, Goldfrapp, Jarvis Cocker is in it, Simon Raymond from the Cocteau Twins, whose father, Ivor Raymond, did all the arrangements for Dusty and the Walker Brothers back in the day. Wow. It was a a really, it just packed full of great people. And we were there witnessing Scott doing a little bit of the making of what became the album, The Drift, which is a masterpiece, came out in about 2006, I want to say. Touch you in the shadow And from there, it just, you know, the next thing was the Stones. And uh, yeah, how did the Stones get a hold of you? I assume that's what happened. I would love to know how the Stones got a hold of me. (laughs) Um, It was it was just one of those things where, you know, somebody saw the Scott Walker film at Tribeca and was impressed and was somebody who was connected to Rolling Stones world. And they were on the hunt for someone to tell the story of Exile on Main Street. Yeah. And it was just one of those moments after, you know, decades of pushing your career uphill by yourself, an email pops into your email box. It was essentially like, hello, we are the Rolling Stones. What is your availability like these days? And you're like, my availability is available. Yeah, right. Whatever you want me to do. Yeah. Please, I'll do it. Please, not dirty work, whatever it is. And, uh, (laughs) you know, thank thank, thank God it was uh, Exile on Main Street. Their greatest album, of course. Yeah, absolutely. masterpiece. That must have been so great. Did you uncover any things that surprised you when you were making that movie about the making of Exile? Not maybe necessarily about it. I mean, the stories are amazing, you know, and getting to actually talk to them hearing it from them to sit down with Anita Pallenberg and Mm -hmm. hear it from her side. That was awesome. The best thing was being led into the vault. You know, they they're very well organized and they have all of their stuff in a number of these kind of vaults. One of them is or or storage facilities. You know, one was on the outskirts of London. It was almost like, you know, bag over the head. We drive you out. (laughs) Very secretive. And in one of these rooms in this vault was a a temperature controlled room with all like film and video stuff that they had collected and made. And on the top of one shelf going across, honest to God, the whole shelf uh, were boxes labeled cocksucker. And this was the work print from Robert Frank's cocksucker blues. Wow. I was under the impression I was going to get a print of it that we could copy and use. I didn't realize that they, and I don't know if they realized they had 40 plus hours of Frank's footage in this vault. Wow. So I just said, can I take all of it? And I said, yeah, take it. Go ahead. No way. So that was the big one. I mean, essentially the film 
while we did shoot some of our own kind of like fake archive and I interviewed everybody myself, a good part of that was kind of like remixing Robert Frank's footage because it was all right of the period. It was yeah. right after it was the tour. It was sort of like behind the scenes, you know, in between dates, hanging out in L.A., hanging out here and there. So uh, that was awesome to just like skim through all that stuff. Like the best thing was just like a color reel of the stones in a couple station wagons, just rolling through the South. Yeah. And I then, love that. And then, yeah. And then stopping at somebody's house, I think maybe like one of the backup singers, or maybe it was Billy Preston's family. It was like a black family having a big Sunday dinner yeah. and all the, all the ladies in the kitchen are cooking and everyone's eating on paper plates and kids are running around and there's Keith and Mick and just, <laughs> yeah. you know, the right. band and the backup singers and the crew, everyone was just like hanging out. It was that stuff. Cause I mean, it's the footage is known for its excessive sex and drugs. Sure. But I was like, this is just really sweet. <laughs> this yeah. is very cool. Well, yeah. So are you a musician yourself? I can play the drums. I wouldn't call myself a musician Yeah. per se. You know, I was in bands in high school. And then just once I went to college and just started roaming around, I, I just gave it up. I couldn't lug that crap around. I, I think a lot of the motivation for doing what I do is because I, I wished I had. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. It's as close to it as I can get. I really, I just always say, I should have been in a band. Damn well, it. Don't you think, though, that playing some music gives you a little bit more insight into making these types of films? Playing the drums specifically, I always talk about it in terms of the edit. My editor, Claire Didier, on a lot of the docs is also very musical and is a real music fan. It's like when you're working with someone who doesn't have the beat, you can kind of tell. Oh, sure. Because so much of it is about just creating rhythms and feels uh, within the cut, especially when you're dealing with a lot of music. So I, I just feel like it's, it's something innate. You know, it's always about feel to me. Yeah. So I, I, it's, I know there's got to be a connection somewhere. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So Shoplifters of the World is a new movie. How did you get the idea and how did that blossom into a screenplay? Pretty simple. You know, I was I'd been toying with I, I was trying to figure out how to get back to narrative. You know, I started with a scripted film uh, right out of the gate and it just kind of faded away. Um, and then documentary really took over. Uh, but I was trying to build a bridge uh, back to narrative stuff. And I thought, let me do it through music. It just makes sense. It's the kind of the world I I live in. And was really toying with a little story about me and my friends in the 80s. I was imagining a little sweet kind of coming of age summer story. Uh, and just didn't really have a lot of focus. I had the characters, but I didn't really have a story. And then Lorianne Hall, who has the story credit on Shoplifters, had grown up in Denver and remind and had told me about this, you know, urban myth of the famous holdup, you know, uh, was like, do you remember that thing that happened in the eighties when the Smiths broke up in Denver? I had no idea what she was talking about, but it immediately sounded like 
like the perfect inciting incident for a film. She's like, yeah, yeah. make a great, it would make a great movie. You know, we thought, oh, this must, you know, I'm clearly inspired airheads and other similar sorts of stories. Sure. So I just moved my characters to Denver and we just started cracking the story. You know, it, it kind of wrote itself. It was a very quick first draft and we showed it to the band to see if they'd even allow us to proceed with that much music and uh, we got a pretty early thumbs up on it wow and then spent then spent a decade trying to figure out how to pay for it all you know? <laughs> yeah, sure sure yeah so that is just an urban myth do we have any documentation that that maybe actually happened it almost happened the story is that a young man named james kiss i believe it was actually 88 still very distraught at the loss of the smiths at a bit of an end of his rope uh, in his life, staked out the crummy commercial radio station right outside of Denver, sat in the parking lot with a bag of Smith tapes and a rifle, but lost his nerve. Like called the security over and asked them to call the authorities because he needed help. So they took him away, having not really done anything, which is so Smith's, right? Um, and it, it sort of made the paper. And and a little tiny story, I have a PDF of it tucked away somewhere. It just blossomed into that, you know, urban myth of this big holdup that went down because yeah. the Smiths broke up. It's just a great myth engine. You know, it's like it's a perfect starting point for a story. Yeah, yeah. So we wanted to kind of let him have it and let him actually go through with it. I was happy in the haze of a drunken hour, but heaven knows I'm miserable now. I was looking for a job and then I found a job And heaven knows I'm miserable now In my life Why do I give valuable time To people who don't care if I How do the different chapters in the movie, because you've got it divided into chapters, how does that help serve the story? You know what? I got to say that it was like a comment from somebody. It was one of those things when a producer goes, you know, it would be a really good idea if we had chapter headings. That'll help make it better. And you just go, what the hell are you talking about? But then you think about it for a second. You go, oh, great. Let's do the math. Oh, that divides perfectly into four pieces. Let's do it like a like a, like a double album. And That's what I one, was thinking. Two, yeah, side three, side exactly. Four. Yes. Four sides. So it was just like another excuse to get cheeky with like, you know, titles and references to Smith songs. Sure. And then, you know, you just looked at the kind of the pieces and you assigned a song to each piece. And it kind of if you really think about what's going on in the film, you know, yeah, this is a little bit of like, please, please, please let her get what she wants at the end. And, you know, is it really so strange? Like was kind of all about the different crushes people had on each other and everyone's different motivations and kind of self, you know, explorations. And it, it, it actually worked, you know, it's one of those suggestions that initially maybe you roll your eyes at your producer and go, really, you want me to do what? <laughs> but <Yeah>. then like, <laughs> sure, let's try it. Oh, how great. I love it. Let's keep it. Good times for a change. See the luck I've had can make a good man turn back. So please, please, please Let me, let me, let me Let me get what I want 
this time. Talking about producers, are you perhaps referring to Joe Manganiello? No, Joe always had very good ideas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, Nick and, Nick and Joe are our ride or die, man. They were there from the beginning. And without them, we'd never really would have gotten this thing off the ground. Joe, you know, famous for things like Magic Mike and True Blood. Oh, yeah. Uh, the and, Werewolf and also True Blood. The Werewolf and yeah. True Blood. And if you've stuck around to the bitter end of the new uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League, Joe emerges as a character called Deathstroke, <laughs> who we hope we'll see more of in the future. In that universe, he looked really badass. He's got this like bleach blonde mohawk. But uh, no, they're great. I mean, Joe got his hands on it really early on and took the role of the DJ. Yeah, they were just starting to produce themselves. So yeah, they were kind of there at the ground level. Yeah, one of my favorite moments in the movie. Of course, I'm going to tell everybody there's lots of spoilers in this podcast, so we're not ruining it for anyone. Uh, who doesn't want to know? But one of my favorite <laughs> lines is <laughs> the distraught character holding the radio station hostage tells the DJ the Smiths are the most important band in the history of the world. And right as he takes a hit off a pot pipe, the DJ says, you've obviously never heard Twisted Sister. And I, I just about laughed off the couch at that one. That was a good one. How much did he go off the script and just kind of improvise lines versus sticking to it? Not at all. I mean, that was all as written. There's precious little. The only the only real improv in the film was Thomas Lennon, who uh, is the dickhead who owns the record store at the beginning. Oh yeah, and uh, he just he just riffed constantly, and it was absolutely hilarious. Yeah, no, I mean that was uh, that was as written. That's a little a little nod. We have a friend Andrew Horn who had passed away uh, earlier that year. He was a great documentary filmmaker. He made a film about Klaus Nomi. And his last film was called We Are Twisted Fucking Sister. So I was like, I gotta, gotta get a little twisted fucking sister in the movie for our man Andy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That was a great line in there. That was good. I love too how Joe's character, the DJ, comes around to the Smiths as the movie progresses and he's forced to listen to this music. And he's obviously, you know, he's like, you hear the radio station playing before the takeover happens as the characters are going around town in the cafe and such. And there's some Aussie that Ozzy comes Osborne. Yeah, we got Osborne. we got an Aussie track. Yeah, Bark at the Moon. Very pleased. Yeah. So he's obviously, you know, his musical mind is well entrenched in that genre. But he's forced to listen to the Smiths. But at the same time, he actually is listening as it's playing, and he acknowledges that there's some good stuff in the band, which is, uh, I thought that was really interesting to write that in. Well, yeah, it's it, it starts by like he really just listens to Johnny Marr playing guitar. I mean, who can resist Johnny Marr playing guitar, right? I mean, he's one of the greatest. Yeah, no, we wanted it to be, you know, this kind of sweet sort of meeting of the minds and where like one generation sort of is trying to indoctrinate the other, but they realize that they have a lot in common, actually. Because in a way, I always look at it as I feel like Dean and and you know, full metal Mick, you're kind of like the same guy, you know, these social misfit music nerds just kind of separated by a generation. Yeah. And that really one went like, you know, you're this young whippersnapper who thinks the world begins and ends with the music you like. Once you get older, you realize, wait, they all stand on the shoulders of everybody else. I mean, just doing stones in exile. I mean, it took me way back to into all sorts of blues, you know, that I hadn't necessarily been aware of. Mm -hmm. And, maybe wasn't listening to back then, but now I do, you know? So it's like, yeah, you, you, it, it was, an, it was, it was kind of thinking along those, those lines. 
Because I feel like at any point, anyone who's a big music fan has been on either side of those conversations, trying to convince somebody who's either older or younger about something that they like. After watching the movie, I listened to Hatful of Hollow the day after. I watched Friday night, Saturday morning, woke mm. up, put that on, and put headphones on, and sat out on my deck and listened to that album cover to cover and was blown away again, not only by Johnny Marr's guitar playing, which we all acknowledge is fantastic and groundbreaking for the time, but that band didn't have any synthesizers. They were back to a rock trio. Morrissey, obviously, his phrasing and his vocals and his melodies were unlike anything we had ever heard before, but I really was blown away by how in sync and on the ball the drums and the bass are in that band. Mm -hmm. There's so many good songs, because there's a ton of songs on Hatful of Hollow, for instance, that are not in the movie, that are fantastic songs. How did you narrow it down and pick the ones that you used? It was really hard. I think the first draft probably name-checked a good 35 to 40. <laughs> and uh, we were told you must pick 20. So, yeah, you know, it's just, it's sort of, nat it was a natural progression. You know, some stuff was written in, uh, mostly already, you know, all planned for before we shot. And uh, it would either just, you know, it served the scene. Each character sort of had a little thematic set of songs that matched what was going on with them or it's name checked in the dialogue and you know and you wanted to create a bit of an overview of the uh of the career landing of course at the final album which you know purists will argue oh it wasn't out at that point they broke up and then the album came out but like you can't do the film without something from strange ways here we come i mean yeah. come on now uh but yeah, no, it's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary career. And that's what's incredible about the band is, you know, they went out on a total high, you know, like yeah. that hat full of hollow. It's it's a compilation. Yeah, but it, it is. stands as one of their best albums. It's, uh, it's such a good listen. Yeah. And you're right. Like, it's a band. It was a very, very tight combo. There's not a bum note in the whole collection. I mean, you know, some people might argue that a couple of the covers that they chose might be a little off, you know, a thing like Golden Lights, which I, I still find really endearing. I love that you had interview clips and footage of this mess interspersed in between and the parallels with the bicycle riding, for instance, from the video, and then the people mm -hmm. riding around, riding down to the uh, radio station to kind of root on the uh, takeover. Yeah, we wanted to, I mean, there was an early cut without it. And it just, it was an, it was a kind of a suggestion from a little couple little, you know, focus group, friends, screenings, people that didn't really know anything about the band. They just wanted just a little more context because the film, it's so referential. It's a real, like, oh, yeah. 
it's a real nerdy geek out. It goes really deep. Every little bit is referencing something somehow Smith's related. So it was just a suggestion in the room, like, how about a little documentary or something to help us? You know, that's what I do. So I, we called in, called in the, uh, the archive team, one of the teams that we work with on some other films and just kind of picked a few great old classic clips to just give it a little bit of that context and reflective nature to show you, you know, what we're talking about, kind of the importance of the band, who they were. You wanted to hear them and see them. Yeah, I love it. It was really one of those great late breaking additions, kind of like the chapter headings right. uh, that you don't really plan for, but that just sort of gently elevated everything at the end. getting into it man i know you had the idea for the story about you know kind of the coming of age you know leaving high school going on to college or whatever happens after high school how did the story arc for the characters change after you had fully integrated the smiths idea because it's obviously this movie is centered around the smiths and their music but it's really a vehicle to tell these two different love stories yeah it's interesting i mean the the arc of it was kind of already planned out in the very early sort of treatment of the film. You know, they're, they're, they're my stories. It's me and my friends, just these really small little dramatic arcs that aren't really that dramatic, you know, but when you're living them back then, of course it is, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, if you're coming out of the closet or dealing with your sexuality or confronting a relationship and it's the realities, you know, are we, are we lovers or are we friends? And then, especially with Cleo and Dean, it was just uh, us taking that classic kind of pretty and pink trope. And instead of the weirdo getting, you know, the, the quarterback or the star of the, you know, the most popular guy in school, it was like geek meets geek. You know what I mean? We yeah. wanted like the weirdos to end up together, <laughs> the outsiders, you know, it's like Molly Ringwald actually goes out with Ducky at the end or something. It was kind of trying to be yeah, a little bit right. revisionist with our own 80s cinematic mythology and sort of set the record straight, you know what I mean? Yeah. In some ways, uh, and just play out those really simple little stories. It didn't change all that much. I really just think it was, a, you know, it did take us so damn long to make the film that it was just a, a slow process of calibrating the relationships, you know, Patrick and Sheila. It's, it's I think any any dude who grew up as a, 80s closet case that had a quotes girlfriend and just hung on for dear life will tell you that that i mean it, i've talked to so many people they're just like that was me that was me that was yeah. me or right. my girlfriends at the time going oh my god how many gay guys did i date in high school it's ridiculous <laughs> you know yeah, right. and just you know it's like are you new wave are you gay i can't tell you know it's like it was like the costume like the cat like the you, you could become a character and deflect uh questions about your sexual identity in a way because your identity was more tribal you know yes you were a, you were a mod you were a goth you were a punk and you could kind of hide in that and be safe because it was a bit of a scary time 
for people who were othered. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. So, so, so we really wanted to express that too. Yeah. Well, I think there's that great parallel between the character, Patrick, like you said, his girlfriend, Sheila, but he's practicing celibacy. <laughs> yes. And Sheila is hot to trot, man. She wants to go and ends up hooking up with somebody that, you know, and it ends just mm. like you think it's going to end probably yep. for her. But with Patrick, I thought that there was a great parallel between kind of Morrissey's sexual ambiguity and Patrick doesn't really know who he is yet. He's kind of finding it out in the movie. Did you draw that parallel between Morrissey as you were writing? Not specifically. I mean, you know, in the 80s, you had people like, like Elton John, who was married to a woman. You had Boy George on in a televised interview saying he was bisexual. And Morrissey's saying, I don't, you know, ugh, sex, asexuality was, celibacy was his thing, which was freeing and also very confusing, I think, for kids. Thank God we had people like Bronski Beat out there just going, we're out, we're here, we're queer. But if you really bought into the, the, the Smith's vibe, that was a great cover, right? So the asexual, the celibate thing. Yeah, no, I mean, the he was always kind of crafted as the little Morrissey wannabe. You know, he's the one that spouts off Oscar Wilde quotes. Yeah, right. You know, kind of, self, kind of self-consciously. The way we styled him was very Morrissey-esque. Yet he's got the camera, he's the photographer, so we actually sprinkled a little Robert Maplethorpe on him, you know, with some of his stylings. Him and Sheila are kind of like an 80s version of Patty and Robert in some kind of way. We have we have like subtle little other stories going on under the surface that aren't fully expressed in the narrative, but we're there to help the characters, yeah, you know? Right. Uh, and then it was really just the actor digging in and, and finding it out for himself. But here you also, you know, James Bloor, who's a wonderful British actor, was not a Smiths fan, was, you know, 20 something approaching this role, just saw a lot of himself in it, even though it's separated from his life by, you know, many generations the emotions and the stories were kind of all the same. You know, it was like, I had a crush on my straight best friend too. Yeah. I totally relate to this. All of it spoke to him and to most of the cast too. They really found parallels in the friendships and all those dynamics with kind of the way they live now. So, yeah, well, I think there's a lot of universal truths in, a, in you know, the coming of age stories in there. Everybody can relate to it because everybody had to go through mm -hmm. it. I thought that one part that was really nice was uh, Patrick. He seems kind of lost through most of the movie and unsure. He could just has this look on his face. Like, do I pick red? Do I pick blue? You know, but mm -hmm. there's the scene outside of the gay bar where they chase off the ne'er-do-wells. And he finally has a look on his face. Like he feels accepted and he feels good about himself. And I wonder if that was, was that on purpose? Was that like showing the audience that that is the direction he's going to go? Oh, I think it was just an actor choice in the moment, you know, uh, that that entire night, to be perfectly frank, was such a blur. It's a miracle we got it all shot. Um, <laughs> this film was so low budget. I mean, I, I I saw somebody somewhere say something about Hollywood got their hands on the Smiths. Like you have no idea how far off Hollywood this damn movie was. You know what I mean? Barely three million dollar budget. You know, we were racing to get every day. Yeah. That was a day we had to like do a fight scene, do a club scene. Uh, a generator blew. It lost us about three hours that night. And then wow. the second we rolled, it started raining. You know what I mean? It was like one of those nights. So whatever ended up on screen, I, ha I, I, I barely take responsibility. I think I barely could call action and move on to the next setup. But uh, <laughs> it's to the credit of that, those, that cast. They were so 
prepared and committed. They really felt it. They were awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the art takes over and kind mm-hmm. of dictates what's going to happen. Yeah. Fight scene, drag queens in the rain. Are you kidding? I mean, like, what a nightmare that was. The makeup's going <laughs> to run. I know. <laughs> the wigs, the wigs. Watch the wigs. We, we made it. We made it. It's a miracle. <laughs> you choose besides the smiths obviously there's a lot more music to choose from to help fill out the musical story how did you choose those songs oh geez a lot of it was written in and then 95 percent of it had to go actually probably 99 percent of it had to go because we spent all our money on the smiths um the ones we had to hang on to we had to have a good metal tune up front Luckily, Joe Manganello is pals with Ozzy and Sharon. So Bark at the Moon came at, at the nice price. And I had written in Bronski Beat in the club and in, you know, playing it or, you know, while we were in pre-pro and even on set, Joe's brother, Nick, like he is a little younger and hadn't heard it before. He was not an 80s baby. So when he heard that tune, he would just run around going, tell me why? Like every five minutes, he's like, this is the greatest song I've ever heard. It's like, I don't care what it's going to cost. We're going to get it. We're going to get the. We have to get this tune. we knew Bronski and uh, Ozzy were safe but um I mean I had written in like everything but the girl and New Order and Susie and the Banshees and the Cocteau yeah. Twins and we just had to slice them we just were broke Liz Gallagher who is the greatest music supervisor on the planet uh, who really masterminded all the Smith stuff for us we just rolled up our sleeves and went to work and we we had some friends at like Bank Robber Music for example it's a great you know licensing uh publishing company just we were like what's your cheapest 80s please just send us like your short stack and luckily within there was an, a certain ratio another great manchester band uh so that goes in i'm grew up in the boston area so when i saw big dipper in there we're all going out together remember that one's yeah, like yeah, oh, yeah. a great a great one i would hear on the radio all the time we we snapped that up There's a couple library tunes in there. You'd never know. Um, <laughs> Sound well, alike. I was watching. Yeah, yeah. I was watching with somebody going like, "What is that? What is that? Is that like, like White Snake?" I'm like, "It's not. <laughs> it's a shitty library sound alike." Um, there's only like one of those in in there somewhere. But yeah, just a couple other little nuggets that we were able to squeeze out, and then some great like '60s soul pops up in the uh, liquor store. You know, we, we, we just scraped it out. I'm glad we were able to get at least a couple authentic 80s cues across the finish line. 
uh, that didn't cost us, you know, an arm and a leg. Yeah, well, you did a great job with it because it certainly doesn't sound that way. As I was watching the movie, I was thinking like, man, these these other tunes are really rounding it out nicely. So yeah, I mean, for the most part, they're all really like period specific, which was which was uh, really important for us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously, we've been talking about a lot of Smiths music here, but what are your favorite Smith songs? Oh boy, oh boy. Obviously, the first thing I ever heard and was "How Soon Is Now." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think everybody, that's kind of everybody's first one. The twelve-inch was like an impulse buy. It's I don't I, people people today. I don't know if people do this with things on Apple Music or I. I would you know I'd go to record stores and just buy stuff because I like the cover. You know, right? Be like that sure. looks good. I hope yeah. I hope it's a good album. And uh, that was an impulse buy in the import bin at the record store in the mall. You know, it's like that blue 12 inch with the slightly homoerotic photograph on the cover. And I, I had no idea what I was getting my hands on. Played it and was like, oh, crap, this is that song I heard on the radio a few days ago. Like we had a great college station where I yeah. grew up. So, so that one will always, always be like the favorite. still have that one? Oh yeah it's in the movie it's the it's the 12 inch that's you in have the, the actual oh that's your copy oh yeah yeah wow, we cool. put a lot of our own we put a lot of our own stuff in the movie like one of our agents who was uh repping the film like as a, a, a smith freak and like handed off his whole stack of 12 inches uh yeah there, there there's a lot of our own memorabilia tucked away it's pretty oh, cool that's very um, cool yeah but that's that's got to be you know that's the all time favorite. That's that's one of those hard questions though. I mean, I like. Sure. I was on so someone else a while back. We were just going like, what's the favorite album? And you know, the Queen is Dead always comes out on top. But you know, the compilations. I love Louder Than Bombs. Like to mm-hmm. me, the double album. It's just got the singles. It's got the hits. It's got B sides. It's got the Peel sessions. It's so awesome uh, from top to bottom. It. I just remembered. It was just such a high school tape, you know, would have it yeah. in the car nonstop. That has panic, uh, ask boy with a thorn on his side. It's got, I think how soon as now is on it. It's just got so many try like London, half a person. It's one of my favorites. 16 clumsy and shy. I went to London and died. I put myself in at the Y. I like it here, can I stay? And do you have a vacancy for a back scrubber? Yeah, I think whatever tape your friends had or you had, those are your favorite songs. Mm-hmm. And it could have very easily been another one of the collections that had different songs, and that would have been your mm-hmm. favorite. It's what you listened to exactly. and really kind of got tattooed into your brain. That was the one like you'd pull into the parking lot with the windows down, cranking it up, you know, to yeah. show off your You've got the new Smith tape, whatever. It was one of those. It was, it was one of those. Absolutely. It would be pretty awesome to see those guys get back together when investigating, you know, using this music from the Smiths. Did you get any inkling at all what the vibe is in that camp? It's never going to happen ever. 
And I don't know, I don't know if, I don't know if it really should. I feel like that's one of those bands that, like, again, they went out on a high. Uh, everything that has come since is so acrimonious. There's been lawsuits, um, and just, you know, just it's it's not. I I can't see it being a, a happy reunion. Uh, so much money has been offered. I know Coachella at one point wanted to, you know, just I I don't even know what the figure was, but it must have it been astronomical. Astronomical. Yeah, no, I I don't, I don't think it's I don't think it's a possibility. I think that's that's something that I think is so best left where it was. Yeah. You know, I mean, God, Johnny Mars out there doing great stuff today. I mean, they they've you know they've all gone their separate ways, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm content to let it stay in the past. <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> well, what's next for you? That is a really good question. I would like to know. Um, it's 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 been a we're it, there's just a lot on the back burner. I'm actually attached to. I'm going back to like more of a historical documentary. We're doing a we're going to be doing this big feature doc about Rock Hudson and wow. the '80s and and AIDS and Hollywood and the closet. It's just it's uh it's going to be a really interesting piece. But I have a new script that we're teeing up. I have in my mind to kind of do a bit of an '80s trilogy. So I'm toying with another, another story, another band, and we'll see what happens. Definitely like casting off the angst and moving more into something that's a lot more fun, frivolous, wild and wacky. Fingers crossed. We'll see if it comes off before another decade goes by. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, that sounds great. Stephen Kayak, thank you so much. Oh, it was a pleasure. Great to be here. Thanks very much to filmmaker Stephen Kayak for telling us all about Shoplifters of the World, which is out now and available to stream. And make sure to check out the Shoplifters of the World Unite playlist on your favorite music streaming service as well. We'll see you next time on the Rhino Podcast. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino Podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.